You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're now in Exodus chapter 4. We've been working through uh, this teaching series through the book of Exodus. And uh, we find ourselves here kind of finishing up chapter 4. I'll start reading in verse 18. You're welcome to follow along with me and And let's just prepare our hearts uh, to receive God's Word, because this is God's Word. And sometimes it's strange, sometimes it sounds confusing, we're not sure what's going on, but it's always good for us, and always there's always something uh, for us. Uh, So let's read, uh, starting in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel's my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that, he, that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and then he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is God's word. Well, we don't skip over the hard parts in Scripture at Holy Cross. (laughs) Sometimes I wish we did. Uh, but you know, you know you're in the Old Testament when the foreskins start being mentioned, right? Um, this would have been a great week to let James preach, uh, take a week off for me, but here we are. And there's much to gain from it. And, and here we see, um, in this passage, we see this impossible task to which God has called Moses. We see this strange ritual of blood, and we see a people of faith, um, how would you like the task that Moses was called to? It seems quite impossible. Go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go, and if they don't, I will kill their children. But he won't listen to you. And the reason he won't listen to you is because I have hardened his heart. Go to CVS and get me a bottle of water, but they're going to be out of water And the reason they're out of water is the delivery truck that delivers water broke down on the way. And why did the truck break down? Because I made it break down. So go on, get me water. Strange, isn't it? It's that it seems like an impossible task. God is telling Moses to do something that he is bound to fail in. From our standpoint, this is impossible because we work within 
a worldview of our limitations. We work within a whole host of human limitations. But God doesn't. God is not bound to our limitations. He's not bound to our physics or our limitations of time and space and power. If we attempt to understand God's providence of how he will do what he says he will do according to our own abilities, then we will make God to be someone that he is not. If God says he will do something and then we start figuring out how he can do it based on how you and I would do it, then we've created something totally other than God. And so here is God teaching Moses a lesson in divine providence. And when we seek to understand God, not based on our limitations, but based on how he has revealed himself, we are able to see our lives and his, his word, his commands, and his instruction to us throughout, through his lens of his ability rather than ours. It's totally different. What is divine providence? Providence is God's holy, wise, and powerful preserving, sustaining, and governing his creation and their actions according to his good purposes and glory. Cliff notes, God knows what will happen. God prepares what will happen because God has created and ordained what will happen. Movies have tried to capture this power of divine providence where human limitation is not a factor, where we can manipulate and control the world around us. Because if you know what will happen, then you will be able to prepare for what trouble lies ahead. And the reason you know it will happen is because you made it to be that way. But even movies can't get past full limitations. Even movies can't fix fix this problem. Consider Back to the Future, right? A classic time travel movie. If Marty doesn't get his mother to fall in love with his father at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, then he will cease to exist. And so he goes back in time and messes up something with the time continuum, and he starts to disappear because his parents are not meeting at this dance. And so he has to go back and manipulate the environment, manipulate the circumstances so that his parents will meet and he survives or actually is created in the first place, right? So he does that. He manipulates the circumstances. His mom and dad, they meet at the dance. They fall in love. They get married and he is born. Sorry, spoiler alert. It's like 35 years old. So if you didn't see it, <laughs> sorry, you're out of luck. But Marty knows that he can go back and manipulate circumstances and control circumstances, but he can't create circumstances. See, he can't create anything, something from nothing. And so he's even bound to certain human limitations. But God's providence means that God knows the future so he can prepare for the future. And the reason he knows the future is because he has created all things to come to pass in the exact way that he desires them to come to pass. And consider Aaron. One way to look at Aaron is to say, what luck that Moses would be given this impossible task and he can't speak well. What luck that he would be given a brother who is, can speak really well. It's a really good thing that he has a brother with perfect speech. But we are not to, meant to see 
Aaron as this lucky break for Moses, but a provision prepared by God with the necessary gifts and now fully understand, understood by us. It wasn't that God was just so smart. It's not that God just put two and two together and he thought, okay, you, don't, you can't speak well. You got a brother who speaks really well. You guys should really meet up. It's not that God just puts it two together. God knew it would work because God created it to work that way. Last week, uh, we looked at this passage where we learned that Moses is fearfully and wonderfully made. We learned that God created him to be a certain way with the exact gifts that God desired Moses to have. But we also learned that, that Moses was created with the exact limitations that God desired him to have as well. It's appropriate and even more so biblical to think of it in this way. God created Aaron three years prior to Moses. Aaron would grow up into adulthood with the necessary gifts needed to, for the task of helping Moses. Aaron would be going to Egypt just at the right time that Moses would be leaving Midian and they would meet together 40 years later in the desert at the exact moment that God would meet Moses with these instructions. And we say, what are the odds? God says, what my purposes are often hidden from you, but I, am nev I never stop working. And here in this passage, God allows us a peek behind the curtain of his providence. And he says, look at what I'm doing. I'm always doing these things. I'm always working. It's not a coincidence that, that we're having this conversation and, and you're talking about how you're fearful of speech and your brother with perfect speech just walks up to you after 40 years. God says, I, can, I know the future. I prepare for the future. I give you everything you need for the task I've called you to because I've ordained all things to come to pass. We will come across countless more examples in the Exodus story and, and throughout Scripture of God's providence. But not as many as clear as this, this meeting of Aaron and Moses because it's here where God reveals his character of power, his infinite power, his complete power control his his wonderful governing of all things in creation and their actions how he creates how he prepares how he provides and directs how he brings about all that he desires to bring about for his glory and our joy in experiencing the overflow of his grace If God wasn't able to do this, then how could he be the God who says, I work all things out for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purposes? How could it be that God says, I, this is going to work out okay for you if he doesn't know, if he doesn't provide, and if he didn't ordain? And we see God presenting himself in this way to Moses. Think about your impossible tasks. Think about the life God's given to you, the tasks he's, he's led you into. Think about the calling. Think about the difficulties, the needs, and the worries that you have. And so quickly we say, but how can this be? How will it work out? Imagine the overwhelming weight of responsibility on Moses. Go do this, and, I, and it's not going to work. Trust me. And Moses saying, okay. Because he's not, he's not thinking at this point. He is reassured of God's providence. He's not thinking on his own limitations. 
consider some of these biblical truths that we can draw out of this passage, that God prepares for all our needs before we come to realize them. Before you know your needs, God knows your needs. He's prepared for them. When crisis hits, when trouble strikes, it often takes us by surprise, but it's no surprise to God. What you don't see coming, God sees coming because he's already there. He's not bound by our limitations of space and time and physics. No one has on their calendar an alert from their phone that says, nervous breakdown tomorrow at 2 p.m. Got to get ready for that. (laughs) Conflict with neighbor, first thing in the morning. No one gets those alerts. God knows. Nothing takes God by surprise. Because he's already been there. He's already ordained it. He is already there. And what we don't see coming, he has already provided the needs for that moment so that we could walk courageously, faithfully in his will. You see, for Moses, his quiet life was disrupted. Forty years in the desert, quiet life, living a quiet life, disrupted unexpectedly, and he was given this overwhelming task that God was calling him to. But even for this task, God had been ready for the answers that Moses had. I can't speak well. I'll give you the words to say. They don't listen. I'll open their ears. How will they believe? Show them these signs. God knows what Moses is going to ask, and he's already prepared for it. But God not only prepares for our needs, but he's always present. He's always present to provide. God has addressed Moses' fears, right? His fears that people won't listen, and his fears that, that he won't be able to know the words to say. And God says, I'll give you the words to say, and I'll give them the ears to hear. God gives him Aaron. God gives him a message to speak. God gives him the, the staff. It's not this golden wand. It's a staff of, reminder, uh, of remembrance that God is with him and present with him, and he's never alone. And so God provides the resources we need to walk faithfully in the calling to which he has called us. You may be, you may be called into a, a life and a circumstance that, that feels impossible, that you don't know how to get out of. You don't know how God will provide And it's not that God is trying to think up something. Yeah, You know, when you come to God and say, how are we going to do this? And he says, got to be honest, this is a toughie. He knows. He's there. He's providing. He's always present. But it's not that God is just a God of, of presence and of provision. God is an affectionate Father. He's not just the man... that knows how to get things. He's not just resourceful, but he's one who cares for you. In this passage, we get a glimpse of God's fatherly affection for and love for his people. God calls Israel his firstborn son. And it's a statement that has tremendous significance for the whole Bible And it's the first time we see this phrase where Israel is called God's son. We'll see it again. And it's a fundamental to understand who God is and who we are as his people. God is addressing us as his people. To you I will be your father and to me you will be my children. Israel is God's firstborn because 
they were the first nation to be God's people. Of all the people in all the world from all time, it was God that came to the Israelites and said, I choose you. And there's nothing special about you. There's nothing great that you can offer to me. In fact, you're a stubborn people. But I love you and I've chosen you for myself. You are the firstborn. We see later that God would welcome the nations into his family. Through adoption, he brings people, the Gentiles and people from all nations. But Israel, these people were special to God as his firstborn child. It's this theme of adoption, privilege of being loved by God, and a prediction of what we see in the coming chapters of the Exodus story that God is jealous for his people and anyone who gets in the way of his people get in the way of God. Go tell this to Pharaoh. You mess with my children, then you mess with me. God is jealous for his people. His affection is poured out on his people. So we see not just a God who is strong and mighty and compassionate, but a God who cares for us like his children. The task of rescuing God's beloved children from slavery, wow, it must have been this crushing weight on Moses. But much of his fears would be soothed by the fact that God prepared for his troubles, put in place the provision that he needed, and, and, and communicated to Moses that his affection for his people was unrelenting. Nothing will get in the way of God's love for his people. Nothing will get in the way of their rescue. So much so that Moses could hear God tell him a story that seemed so impossible. Go and say this, and he won't listen, but just go. And he's like, yeah. You have reassured me that you are a God who knows the future, plans for the future, prepared the future, created the future, and you're a God who loves your people. So even what you're telling me sounds completely ridiculous. I don't need to be afraid. And so much of Moses' fears would be soothed knowing that he was under God's providential care. And so are you, under God's providential care. We move next to this scene in our passage in verse 24 to 26 where we see this strange ritual. My favorite passage in all the Bible. (laughs) This strange ritual in blood, right? Strange episode, raises a lot of questions. But let me remind you again, it's, it's God's word. And therefore, it's here for our benefit. And so let's see what we can draw out of it. Let's look at a quick summary of this ep- episode. Moses has an encounter with God at the burning bush. He's sent on his mission, and he's traveling to Egypt, and he stops along the way at night to get some rest before he finishes his travel And it appears that God is now out to kill Moses. So that's that's the first strange thing, right? All this that God is doing, and now now, now he intends to kill Moses. But his wife Zipporah circumcises their son with a sharp piece of rock, touches Moses' feet, bare feet, with the, you know, and it (laughs) it appears to be an act that relents God's anger. And, and then after that happens, the story just continues like nothing had ever happened. <laughs> you would think someone should have raised their hand, probably Moses' son, and said, can, can we please talk about what just happened? 
But we don't get any of that. We saw this strange episode, and then we just go on with the story. Let's talk about what happened, shall we? We'll dismiss anyone under 43 because it's a little too... No, I'm kidding. It appears God's judgment is on Moses for some reason. So this is what we know. And this isn't from me. I've had to obviously consult like theologians, biblical scholars, commentaries. So that's it's coming from, this is where it's coming from. Some reason God's anger is on Moses. Some reason. And his wife is able to discern this. We don't know how. Maybe it manifested itself in some kind of physical ailment. Maybe he was having like some kind of epileptic issue or he was feverish. But whatever it was, Zipporah could discern that this was a, a, not a spiritual ailment, but a spiritual, sorry, not a physical, but spiritual. God's anger was on Moses. And she was also able to discern that the problem with Moses and the reason God's anger was on him was that their son wasn't circumcised. In other words, with Moses's, within Moses' family, there was an offense against God. For God commanded all the males in the family of God to be marked with a sign of circumcision as a token of God's faithfulness to them and their obedience to be their pe- his people and as their faithful people. And so it was, God was saying, I am your God, you are my people, and my promises are with you, and you need to apply this sign that you are my people and belong to me as a sign of your faithfulness and affirming your covenant renewal with me. And this act was supposed to be the father's act to do, to circumcise their son, to bring their family under obedience to God's commands. But he was somehow incapacitated, and so Zipporah takes the foreskin, touches Moses' feet, and says, okay, it's kind of like now as as if you did it. And, um, And immediately, all is well. God's anger relents. And, and, his, and the punishment is, and the judgment is satisfied, and they go along their way. In the midst of this strange and bizarre story, I think we actually have a beautiful picture and a very important theological point that God wants to make. If we are to be recipients of God's affection and love, we must be made right with God. God is so holy, so perfect, so other. He is so majestic, and his requirements are perfect righteousness, and he will have no part in sin. But in his merciful provision, because he doesn't know how to be absent from his people, through the covenant of grace, he provided a way for the holy God to have a relationship with an impure and sinful people. And God made a promise to his people that I will redeem you, I will rescue you, I will love you, I will forgive you, and the sign that I will do this will be through this shedding of blood, and the sign that you believe in me will be in, 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 a, in this sign of circumcision. It was through this covenant of grace that God made with Abraham, and a promise that he made to his people. Why circumcision? It's bloody, it's gross, it's invasive, it's intimate, it's painful. I mean, a sharp rock? Come on. But it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be all that. It's meant to signify the cutting away of the deadness of our hearts that keep us from knowing and loving God. The Bible says that God will circumcise our hearts 
It is this removal of sin and this uh, hardening of heart. He says, he says, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. It is this way of, it's this blockage that we have in our heart, this self-centeredness as a result of sin in our life, that we are incapable of knowing God, loving God, and having a relationship with him. And God says, I will cut away that dead part, and I will cut it off, I will cast it off, and I will give you a new heart that responds to my good news, that knows me, loves me, and is faithful to me. It also means something else. Not only was it a sign of the cutting away of sin, it means that those who make, that God makes this covenant with, if they ever disobey, that they will likewise be cut off from God. If you lie, if you wrong people, if you disobey, you'll be cut off from God's family. That's the penalty. You'll be cut off from life. You'll be cut off from God's forgiveness. You'll be cut off from his blessing. And so God was serious about sin. He was serious about righteousness and holiness. And so the people engaged in this obedience as a way of relenting God's anger, satisfying the judgment against, uh, uh, for their sins. And this was a way of satisfying God's anger. And so God would look upon them with forgiveness, and so we could have a relationship with them if they did this. But he said, there are penalties to those who disobey. There are penalties to those who do not follow my commands. I will cut you off if you ever disobey. The ritual in blood, like the rituals in blood, this ritual, like, like all the rituals of blood in the Old Testament, they point us to another ritual of blood. They point us to the cross where Jesus bled, where he died. You see, God's people, even though they were the covenant chosen people of God, they failed. They failed to be faithful. They continued to disobey. They had seasons of repentance and confession and obedience, but they, they always went back to rebellion and God didn't fail. He stayed true to his covenant of grace. He rescued them. He made a covenant with them and said, even though you are faithless, I will be faithful. Remember, Israel here is called God's firstborn son. And this is the name that Jesus takes on himself. He says, I am the firstborn. Jesus takes on the name of Israel. You see what is happening here is Jesus is taking the place of Israel. He says, Israel is the disobedient child of God and I will take the place of Israel and I will take their disobedience, I'll take their sin upon myself and I will be cut off from God in their place so that because of my righteousness they will be received and adopted. The Bible tells us that anyone who is in Christ is Israel. Anyone who trusts in Jesus, who believes in him and trusts in Jesus, takes the identity of the faithful, firstborn Son of God. So when God looks at us through the lens of Jesus' perfect righteousness, he sees children as if they never disobeyed, but were always faithful. See, God had a plan for his firstborn son, Israel. You're my chosen people to whom I've poured out my love and given the oracles of my revelation and my word and I will be your God and you will be my people and they, and they rebelled and they rebelled but God was still faithful to that covenant and so he placed their sin and all their rebellion 
on Jesus. Jesus was cut off from the fellowship of his Father on the cross. When he bore our sin, he took our guilt. He took our shame. And just like Moses that day was spared by the cutting away and the cutting of flesh and the shedding of blood, we are spared by Christ's shedding of blood. For Hebrews chapter 9 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. This is something the people of God knew. Okay, you cut blood, you cut skin. This means that we're forgiven for the shedding of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the Bible also tells us there is no amount of sacrifice, there's no amount of shedding of blood that can forgive us of our sins. We need Jesus to do it. This ritual of blood that happens here with Moses' son was a temporary fix. It wasn't a full sacrifice. It was a temporary one. And as strange as this may sound, it reveals the way to salvation. Like Moses, we have failed to keep God's law and are under his judgment. And the only way of rescue is through an act of sacrifice, a way of sacrifice and shedding of blood. It's exactly what Jesus accomplished on the cross by dying in our place. Jesus was cut off from the love of God so that God's anger would turn away from us. God's anger would be placed on his beloved son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We, he is our substitute. He is the one that takes our guilt. We are far worse than we ever believed. But God's grace is far better than we can ever imagine. And in this strange, strange ritual, we see the beauty of the gospel. We see the good news. God's anger is on Moses. God's wrath is on, on Moses. We can be casual about sin, but God never is. God takes sin so seriously, the only way to forgive us is to send his only son to die. And he uses this encounter with Moses to teach him and us the basic components of salvation. First, God was showing Moses the penalty of sin. You are under judgment. You're under God's divine wrath because you've disobeyed. And second, that God's deadly wrath is satisfied by the blood of circumcision. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to a God who, is, who provides, a God who knows, a God who sees and loves us, but a God whose anger rests on those who disobey? Thankfully, this passage shows us the way to go as well. We see a people of faith. Will you look at verse 30 again in our passage? Here is what happens. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sights of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Everyone who believes will be saved. Exodus 4 ends with faith and worship. This is the right response. This is the only suitable response for those who are under the wrath of God. 
even when we're waiting for God to act and have yet to see their own rescue, the people are hearing this from Aaron and Moses, and they began to give God the proper praise that he was due. They knelt their knees in the sand, they bowed their head, they believed in what he had said, and they committed their lives to him. And that's the response that he invites us into as well. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith, trusting in God, is not just like, well, we'll just, let's, we'll give it a shot. Faith is not that. We are told to trust in a God who is faithful, who is powerful, who is reliable, and who is personal, whose affection is poured out on you. He is a God who keeps every promise, who sees our every need, who provides for our rescue in sending his son Jesus to die for us. Will you believe him? Will you give your life to him? Will you trust in him? Will you worship him?